It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This week on The Takeout, we're at the reopening of the Washington Monument with Interior Secretary David Bernhardt. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to Cafe Deluxe, a place we come to many times. I'm by myself. Why? Because we've already done the big interview. Who's it with? The Interior Secretary David Bernhardt. Why? Well, because the Washington Monument is reopening, and we talked to him the day before that happened. The reason it's been closed, and you may not know this, but for the last decade, it's been closed much more than it's been open. Why? 2011 earthquake, then a big elevator problem. All that's been fixed. We start with our conversation there. The public's been missing this monument for a long time. Why did it take so long? The, the reality is our, our process is always a bit of a challenge, and this has spanned multiple administrations. But, but we're dealing with one of the most iconic and historic properties uh, in our country. And, and so it takes time to do everything right. And uh, also, it's not like you can just uh, um, modify the monument and put a new elevator in it. So uh, a lot of pieces and parts go up in ways that, uh, that maybe in a, if you were building a new building might not be the same way. Uh, we had to do a significant uh, screening area, and that took a while. Um, and so I think we have a great facility now, but it did take, it did take a significant amount of time and, and that is unfortunate for us and for the American people, but we're up and running. So after that scene setter, we'll take you inside the monument with the secretary. And for those of you listening on radio, God love you. We're going to try it as best we can. We did this Wednesday before it reopened to describe what we saw so you could feel it too. Mr. Secretary, it's a beautiful morning. This is going to open up tomorrow, the Washington Monument. Tell me what's going on. Well, welcome to the monument. We've had um, near a little over three years of closure. Um, due to some um, repairs and adding the screening center. And so we're opening up. We've retrofitted our elevator. We've really improved the situation, and it's exciting to be able to open this up tomorrow. The First Lady's going to come do the ribbon cutting, uh, and then from going forward, the American people will be able to use the monument uh, and visit uh, Washington uh, at its finest. And describe forward. what we're about to go through before we actually get into the monument. So itself. this is a, you know, this is a reality in the world we live in today. So this is an updated screening process. Um, we basically started out uh, with a uh, folding table with some chairs. Right. So this is this is certainly an upgrade to the to that. And um, between upgrading the elevator and creating the screening process, we want to make sure that we have a. 
um, environment that is conducive for the visitation and also safe and secure for our visitors. This is a familiar uh, to a well-traveled person, a very familiar experience. For the one and only time in my life, I'm going to get a chance to walk right through. (laughs) That's right. The one and only time in my life. Thank you, folks. We appreciate that very much. So what we have now is with the screens and the system, you're going to have a very fast elevator, relatively, and, um, and a video presentation uh, that talks um, the visitors up as it goes. And these are uh, bigger elevators or the same size? No, the dimensions of the elevator are exactly the same. Um, we've, we've upgraded the way the system works a little bit. Uh, but, but essentially, the experience is very, very similar to what you would have had. Um, there was a, a remote that drove the elevator right. instead of uh, the way it currently operates. Uh, we're now in computerized. Right. And essentially, what this was all about was improving the infrastructure of the elevator system, the shaft, the pulleys, everything about moving it up and down. Making it more efficient um, and uh, work more dependable. That's it. Right. And that took uh, several years. Well, the whole project took about three years. And, uh, and we've had a wonderful benefactor help. Um, and that, you know, this, this facility and, and, frankly, a lot of our National Park Services facilities have a long history of um, a partnership between philanthropy and federal um, appropriations. And that certainly, this project certainly reflects that. With the earthquake, um, because there's no grout between the stones, the stones were literally exploding from the pressure. You know, because it, it just so much pressure, no give, they literally were um, just exploding out. The stones were exploding out. Because there's just no pressure, you know, no relief for that pressure because there's Nowhere no grab anything. It's right. really unbelievable. Let me show you one of the best views right. of Washington, D.C. Yes. Now, you don't get to see the view of the Capitol from here very often. No. Now everybody will. Um, and it's, it's absolutely spectacular. As a congressional reporter, I spent years on Capitol Hill, and one of the best views there is how one of the balconies looking this way. That's it's right. It's some of the best real estate in all of America to look from the balconies there this way. That's right. Rarely do you have a chance to be up here and look down there. Yeah, that's right, and it's really the nation's mall. And um, when you think of what's occurred both on this side and the other side historically, um, the um, visitation on the mall is phenomenal. Maybe you've even played a congressional softball game or two in your day. And so... Um, the fact that this um, uh, was planned and developed in the, in the way it is is just really spectacular for our country. So what are we looking at here? Well, what we're going to be able to see is the, a wonderful view of the Potomac uh, and in the Alexandria and Arlington. You can see the National Airport right across um, the way. And obviously, uh, one of our great icons, the Jefferson Memorial. This is really the best view of the Jefferson. Uh, the Jefferson is also undergoing a little bit of um, uh, maintenance and renovation, and, renovation. Right. and we have a tremendous maintenance backlog at our National Park Service. Um, a lot of things um, we, we have just not invested in the normal maintenance that we should, and over time that has grown to about a $13 billion yes. problem. So here's, a, here's an example of, of earthquake damage from the 2011 earthquake. That, that, that is right, and you know, as we um, have discussed, there's really no grout between these stones. And so the pressure on these stones individually as, as the earthquake was occurring was really phenomenal. So that crack goes all the way through the, the, the stone and um, is just a, a very significant thing. And, there, and really, the higher up you go, the greater the damage. So 
to give my audience a better appreciation of this. Sometimes if there's an earthquake, you'll have surface scarring or surface cracks. This was not what we're talking about. All the way through. Well, that's right. And the big fear was that either the monument itself would fall or literally large pieces of rock uh, would be coming off the monument because the pressure is so great that there's just literally explosions happening internally. And up on top, there, it really it was beat up. And so that w there's still structures up there and things like that to help, help um, uh, manage the situation going forward. So instead of taking that whisper, quiet, super fast elevator back down the Washington Monument, we walked down all 896 stairs and saw the stone structures and plaques from all over the country. So this is an, uh, an example of um, different states uh, taking and uh, placing uh, in the memorial a uh, plaque that represents them. This was um, from the state of Alaska. Uh, it's Alaskan jade, beautiful green color. And it's really a um, visually stunning um, piece of work. And, and relatively recently, 1982. This is obviously Arizona, right. but it's um, petrified wood. Petrified wood. Exactly. I recognize that from all my trips to Arizona as a child. Feels like stone, used to be wood. <laughs> That's exactly right. Higher up tend to be the um, newer states. Right. Uh, you know, and that is, that is uh, as the, country the way grew, the country grew. That is the country built. That's exactly right. So That's absolutely correct. That, that progression. This stone uh, was um, a stone that was provided by Kentucky. And, um, and what I wanted you to see here is uh, what it says um, and, and its message of unity um, provided in 1851, okay? Um, what does it say here? United we stand, divided we fall. And just to right around the corner of yes. history comes the Civil War. Ten years. And, and just, just think about that and experience it, I think says a lot about... Um, our country, and um, and just the, the way history works. Right. I mean, the aspirations were put in stone then. We still had to fight it out. Hope you enjoyed that. The Washington Monument is a kind of structure that is symbolic of the country. Many stones fused together representing one great awe-inspiring thing. Hope you enjoyed that. More with our lengthy interview with the Interior Secretary on the other side of this break. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Cafe Deluxe. As promised, my breakfast has arrived. Good as always. I'll be diving into my omelet momentarily. All by myself because we've already done the interview. Sit-down interview. Newsmaker, the Interior Secretary, David Barnhart. Uh, we did this at the base of the Washington Monument. You know why we were there. So you'll hear the occasional airplane from neighboring National Airport, lawnmower, siren. We started by asking him the big question, what is the philosophy of the Trump administration with public lands and industrial use? Well, I, I think the president has been very clear um, that he's committed to conservation stewardship. Um, he believes uh, fundamentally in people having an opportunity to um, explore, access, recreate on public lands. At the same time, there are certain 
uh, public lands uh, that he believes should be used for the multiple purposes uh, that Congress intended them for. And on top of that, he's committed to restoring and um, maintaining our precious national parks. So I think that when you look at his, um, his, his vision, uh, what you see is that different um, properties um, have uh, different jurisdictional laws associated with them. And our job is to carry out those laws in a way that are collaborative to local communities, um, respectful of the need for a growing economy and for natural resources, and at the same time, um, maximize our opportunities for public access and enjoyment. And you're not shy about using public lands for jobs and energy creation? Well, I don't think it's a question about being shy. I think it's a question about um, what, um, what the law uh, provides for and says. And the reality is that uh, where uh, the Department of the Interior um, primarily works is in the western United States. And in those, um, in those western states, we are a very large um, administrator of property. Um, overall, the Department of the Interior manages one in every five acres of land in the United States. And so, historically, America um, had a plan of land disposal, if you will. Um, go west, uh, right. young man. And, and that, that process continued um, in, in different ways all the way through uh, the 1970s. Um, mining claims were uh, a claim that you received, and then you patented the land, and essentially it went out of federal ownership. And over, over time in the West, there's been a lot of debate about who should hold the, federal, who should hold the land. Um, the president took a very clear and very significant position that said, look, land is going to stay in the ownership of the United States. At the same time, um, he took the position that land, uh, the lands that are for multiple uses should be managed for multiple uses. And when um, you say multiple uses, you mean mining, you mean extraction of fossil fuels, and you mean what environmentalists might regard as exploitation, you would regard as use for public benefit. So I think that's not, not accurate at all. Um, my view is um, the, the public domain lands, for example, the Bureau of Land Management lands, um, those lands are managed for multiple purposes, not a dominant purpose, like energy is not dominant, um, uh, wildlife viewing is not dominant, but, um, but the, whole, the whole structure of the law is so that we plan um, in a way that allows that land to be used for various purposes. Um, and um, where I grew up in western Colorado, uh, within a stone's th uh, throw or certainly a, an hour's drive, you would find fantastic wilderness areas, um, land that um, cattle are grazing on, and land that is being um, uh, utilized for um, uh, natural gas or um, even mining, um, and at the same time recreation. And and that is what I mean when I say multiple use. I'm not saying dominant. What I'm saying is, is the law provides that this must be used in a way uh, that achieves multiple uses. And here's why. When you look at the West um, and, and, and ask yourself why they came up with a law like that, they decided, hey, we're not going to allow these lands to leave the federal estate. But um, for areas that are completely surrounded by federal land, in order for those communities to grow and thrive, there must be some way to utilize that land. Actually, if, if that's not the case, 
um, then the hope of those communities is gone. Mm -hmm. Related to that, uh, the Bureau of Land Management has moved to Colorado, or is going to be moved to Colorado. How did that decision come about? Well, um, uh, my predecessor, uh, Secretary Zinke, um, I believe he was in a committee hearing, it may have even been his confirmation hearing, um, and uh, he certainly had a number of discussions with senators as he was going through his confirmation. Um, and so he came in with the idea that the department would be reorganized. And as part of that reorganization, um, some of the bureaus uh, would move west. And um, there had been legislation um, expressing the idea in the past. Uh, so I think that probably was the uh, germane um, point that led him to that uh, idea. And then uh, he, we've been reorganizing the department in different ways for over, well, ne now nearly two and a half years. And one component of that is um, moving the headquarters of uh, the Bureau of Land Management West. Is there any particular economic research or data that makes Grand Junction the best place for it? Well, there's extensive um, uh, analysis in what we looked for. Um, the reality is, is that for decades, all of our agencies within D.C. Um, have had um, a bit of a trouble uh, recruiting uh, some of our best managers to come here. Not because it's not a great place to live, uh, but most of them are already located in the West. And, um, and there is a pay locality differential that they receive here. But um, what most generally happens is the size of their uh, square footage of their home goes down quite, quite disproportionately. It's, it's a big change. And um, we're in a situation here with the Bureau of Land Management where um, our lease was set to expire, and the lease was at a rate that uh, GSA would have not uh, allowed us to be. So we were going to move uh, one way or the other. Uh, so what I did is I asked um, a couple simple questions. The first question is, uh, if there's a slot here, a job, um, uh, is that job a job that is necessary? And if it is necessary, is uh, DC uh, the best place for it to be done? And, um, and a lot of the jobs are absolutely necessary and they need to be done here and they will be. Uh, so we'll be actually moving folks into our headquarters that are now um, at other parts of town. But other of the jobs um, um, either had not been filled for a long time and were deemed not necessary or um, the thought was that they would be better done in a different uh, location. For example, uh, the leadership for our wild horse and burrow programs are here, but most of our wild horse and burrow issues are actually far in the west. Um, we have a wonderful training center for uh, the BLM in, 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 in Arizona, but uh, a lot of our training leaders were here. And so when you actually go through that process, you realize that, that we could deploy our assets better and then take some of that savings, which is very significant from rent and, and pay, and, and redeploy that to the ground in the local uh, offices that are really, really strapped for resources, quite frankly. Understood. But Arizona, Nevada, Utah, they don't have a Republican senator up for re-election. Uh, Colorado does. There's a perception this decision was made in part or in total to help Cory Gardner. Uh, well, that is uh, completely wrong. And, uh, Didn't factor into it at all. Well, the reality is um, there, there are a number of reasons other communities weren't, um, weren't as viable. For example, 
uh, I felt very that it was very important to not put it in um, a community where there was already a state director uh, for BLM because I thought that would then create just a ultimate state director. So that took out a number of communities uh, that might have been potentially viable. And, um, and frankly, uh, the reality is that um, the move to Grand Junction has strong bipartisan support. Um, let me give you a couple examples. Um, I, uh, uh, John Hickenlooper, who was governor, uh, spoke uh, to me about uh, the move um, west when I was deputy secretary. Jared Polis, uh, the current governor, um, and I think even Senator Bennett um, have all been supportive. So lots of ethical questions have been raised. I don't need to tell you about the Trump administration writ large, but also about this interior secretary and his predecessor. We give interior secretary David Barnhart a chance to address all of those or many of those ethical questions in the next segment. Stay tuned. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett, Cafe Deluxe, by myself, because we've already done the interview, but I want to set it up a little bit. You know, during the closing of the Trump campaign 2016, Drain the Swamp, a huge applause line. Has it been drained, or has it just been populated with different kinds of swampy creatures? We asked the Interior Secretary, David Barnhart, about that. And I started by asking him whether or not, as alleged by the Government Accountability Office, he broke the law by dipping into National Park Service fees during the most recent government shutdown. When we had the conversation before sitting down about uh, the shutdown, you mentioned that you yourself, to alleviate some accumulation of trash here on the mall, got a truck and did it yourself. There's been a GAO report that asserts you violated the law by dipping into Park Service fees to take care of that trash removal in other parks. How do you respond? To that? Well, um, that report, unfortunately, is completely flawed, and I have sent a 302-page response uh, to JAO uh, explaining a number of things um, that they simply factually got wrong. They have a premise that is factually wrong, that um, resources from recreation fees weren't used for these purposes in the past. That's completely flawed. Unfortunately, uh, the Department of the Interior um, solicitor's office had a miscommunication with GAO regarding the date uh, a response was due, and that is unfortunate. Uh, but um, the reality is I don't think the GAO report is worth the paper it was printed on. Because it gets what wrong? It completely, uh, its factual premise is largely that these funds um, had not been used for these people. And could not be used. And, and had not been used for them in the past. I provide in detail, example after example after example, when, when they have been used for precisely this purpose of, of maintaining restrooms, of providing law enforcement. Um, this has been done in the past, and in, as a matter of fact, GAO has even recognized it in the past. So, um, you know, different people have different views. and You have no um, regrets? No, and I would absolutely do it again. Because? Because I think it was the right thing to do. Here's the reality. Um, if we get to a point, and I hope we don't, that there's a government shutdown, um, I, I have a couple of options at that moment. Um, one is, and, and we have this throughout government, there are different accounts um, that are available. There are di uh, different uh, accounts that are not available. And asking if we can lawfully expend this money in this way, um, I would much rather keep people working 
and I would much rather keep our national parks open and available to everybody. My wife and I were married right outside Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, during the shutdown, I was receiving uh, notifications of people whose weddings were going to be curtailed, people who had planned from overseas to come here. I think if I have the lawful means to do it, um, it's not even something I would bat an eyebrow on. Understood. Uh, when I was on the campaign trail with candidate Trump uh, during the closing stretch the last couple of months, he really happened on, and he talked about it openly, this phrase, drain the swamp. And he kind of tried it out, and the audience loved it, and it became emblematic in, other, in certain respects of the final closing argument of his campaign, Drain the Swamp. Again, I, you don't need me to tell you, there are those who look at the roster, yours and others in the senior leadership of the Interior Department and say, well, that's the swamp writ large. That's industry lobbyists moving into senior positions, making decisions, and then in some cases, very short order, going back to the industries from which they came. Does that not look swampy to the average person, and isn't it? Well, I, I can tell you this. Um, I am a big believer in the president's agenda. I'm a big believer in um, uh, what he set out to do for the country. And, and part of that is making the Department of the Interior work better in a number of ways. And at the end of the day... Better for whom? Better for the American people. Serving the American people better. And... Um, and Part of um, being able to do that is certainly having some folks who have the experience and know how to do it and expertise. At the end of the day, I work for the president, and nothing, nothing I will ever do is going to deviate from his um, priorities, um, provided I have the lawful means to do it. And that is the reality. Um, I worked at the Department of the Interior for eight years, um, and I went back um, because I believe in the president's agenda, and I believe in accomplishing it and helping him accomplish it. And people can disagree with that, but, you know, I'm a lawyer. Um, I represented all sorts of clients, uh, nonprofits, big companies, um, associations. But at the end of the day, I was always true to my client, and now my client is the president of the United States and the American people, and they have... On me 100%. And if those who would look at the track record of the Interior Department under your leadership would say, hmm, tie goes to industry, would they be wrong? Oh, I think they'd be wrong in a number of ways, but, but here's where the tie goes, and it's usually not a tie. This president was, for Interior at least, was incredibly detailed and specific about what he wanted to accomplish at this department. If you were on the campaign trail with him, you might have been in Pennsylvania when he spoke on energy or North Dakota. If you were to go back and look at those speeches, what you would see is that he was incredibly detailed. And, um, and he was detailed in exactly what he wanted to do. And I didn't realize that um, early on. Um, I, I believed that the pre I became an early supporter of the president because I could see what he was doing with um, um, uh, working folks in America, folks that I are the people that I grew up with in Rifle, and, and how he was going to be transformative for them. But I was asked to work on his transition uh, team very early, and one of the first things I did is I sat down and started reading his speeches. And I was stunned at how specific and detailed he was uh, on those issues that relate to interior. Like for, endangered for, species well, or well, for, um, for conservation lands. I'm not going to dispose in a wholesale manner uh, 
uh, federal property. That's, that's, that was a different position than most Republicans take. He was uh, concerned and interested in ensuring that the true conservationists, the sportsmen and women, had opportunities to recreate. He also was for uh, the development of our natural resources, absolutely, and he said that. And what he really did as part of the transition that I found interesting was they began to um, early on very well, clearly develop a series of executive orders that they issued right out of the gate. And if you go back and look at those executive orders, Major, what you'll see is that they were very specific in what they directed Interior to do. So Interior's job under this president is really crystal clear, irrespective of who's there. And, um, and uh, the president laid out the agenda to the American people early, said, this is what I'm directing these agencies to do. And what we're doing is doing it. If you go back and look at, at what we've done in regulation, what we've done in policy, and you line it up with um, those executive orders, what you will see is an incredible, um, incredible correlation of, up oh, here's a project, up oh, there's an outcome. And that is exactly what we're doing. And my view is that's exactly what the president um, told the American people he was doing, and we haven't deviated from that in an inch. You haven't deviated from it. Uh, that track record has clearly been established. In that pursuit, have everything you've done and those who work for you done been in accordance with ethics laws and the ethics pledge you signed with this administration? Absolutely. I have spent a lot of time with, um, with ethics officials. Um, I was reluctant to come in um, to a certain extent because of um, the fact that I had had a successful um, legal practice. And I spent a lot of time with the ethics lawyers at the department even before I decided to um, come to the department because I wanted to make sure that uh, if I came, I could do the job of deputy in a way that would be effective for whoever the, sec the secretary. And I also wanted to make sure that I would uh, operate in a way that would be 100% um, in accord with the law. Powering through my breakfast here at Cafe Deluxe by myself because we've already done the big interview. You know, this topic with the Interior Secretary really goes to the heart of what this administration says when it talks about deregulation and who are the deregulators. In many cases, people who work in the Department of Interior worked for the industries that are now in large measure benefiting from the deregulatory actions taken by the agency. The Interior Secretary and certainly the President say, hey, that's what happens when you have an election. And to the Interior Secretary's underlying point, which you've probably heard and will hear again, the President was crystal clear about this agenda, and that he is pursuing it is an absolute fact. Back more on segment four in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation with the Interior Secretary, David Bernhardt, uh, we talked to him about the law, what Congress has said the Interior Department should do, how this administration interprets it, and it's clear that it wants to move as far as it can under the law in the direction of industry and development of public lands. We also talked about fossil fuels and climate change. His answer is coming up. Would you deny or reject the premise that some of the decisions you've made, either as deputy or as interior secretary, have benefited companies for whom you used to represent or work? Or so whose I, interests you so legally I, were bound as their representative to pursue? So I would say um, with, with certainty 
Um, I was not involved in any particular matter involving specific parties uh, where my client, um, my former client or my former employer is a party. And that is, that is, that is, I am certain of. I am certain that I have followed the ethics pledge. Um, and obviously people have differing views and people will look into the facts and they'll find. But I am very confident. I've spent a lot of time um, with ethics officials um, to ensure that my conduct was appropriate. And I'm uh, confident that it is. Do you regard the inspector general investigation as illegitimate? As what? Illegitimate. Uh, well, considering your last I, answer. Well, I, I view an inspector general's uh, review to be um, an effort to get to the facts and, uh, and, and look into allegations that have been made by people who have complained. And, um, you know, my, my view of that is that they're entitled to do that. And when they get through that review, I think um, that will be a good outcome for me. So I... Uh, Define my, a good outcome. Well, that I've completely acted in accord with the law, uh, with the ethics pledge, and with my ethics agreement, and that—that is—that—that is, um, that, that is uh, what um, I believe would be um, an appropriate conclusion after they've looked at the facts and looked looked at the law. You've been quoted as saying you don't sp spend any sleepless nights or you don't stay awake at night. Something to that effect about climate change. True. Uh, that's not what I said. Uh, no. I, what I said is uh, the specific question was about. Um, the 415 number, but here's here's the reality. I I recognize 100% that climate is changing, and I think that there in our many of our decisions, um, we factor that into our thinking every day. Um, whether it's the determination of uh, listing a species, or even what are the what is the infrastructure we're going to put into a particular place, um, where where there is great uncertainty and 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 um, room for disagreement is what that all means, what it precisely means for the future, those changing conditions. And um, my view is what the U.S. Geological Survey scientists have told me is the best way to think about that future is to think about it and, and not rely on a single model, but to look at the full range of models and consider the entire range. And so when I'm looking at something for the future, that's what I tend to do. Uh, but um, but we, we were absolutely recognized that the climate is changing. And fossil fuel extraction and its continued uh, expansion in the United States doesn't encroach on your concern about climate change? How does that factor in? Well, um, what factors in there is if, if you were to go back and look at the laws that the Secretary of Interior operates, you would see that there are about 600 statutes that use, I shall do this, I shall do that. You know what there's not? There's not a single statute that says, I shall fight climate change or I shall stop oil and gas development. And the reality is, if Congress wants to do that, I manage their land. And, and whatever they want to tell us to do, we would do. But I think um, I've seen proposals like stop all fossil fuel development on, um, on uh, interior managed lands. And, and what I have said to a proposal like that is, like, have, has anybody called the governor of New Mexico? New Mexico receives a tremendous amount of revenue from the federal government because of our development of federal lands. Where I grew up in Rifle, the hospitals. Rifle, Colorado. Rifle, Colorado. The hospitals, the fire department uh, station, those are built with revenue from oil and gas development. So I, I think if people want to have that debate, 
Uh, they should in Congress. Uh, I don't think it's for um, a Secretary of the Interior with the stroke of the pen to try to stretch the law in a way that would be inappropriate. And do you think that happened under the previous administration? Um, I do. I've said at different times, not, not on that uh, issue in particular, but I, I, I believe there are numerous instances where um, the prior administration was making an effort to um, hit a policy outcome, and rather than go to Congress, they stretched the law in a way that um, was inappropriate. And I heard, I heard you make reference to the 70s and 80s. Do you think that there is a great rebalancing going on in the Interior Department closer to Teddy Roosevelt and that early 20th century understanding of public lands and moves away from that construct of maybe hyper-environmentalism of the 70s and 80s and 90s? So I think that is a complete misnomer. When you look at, here's some facts that people don't think about. This year... You know um, that's a perception. I'm just giving voice to yeah, that. Yeah, well, I think that it's not well-grounded in facts, and it's not directed at you, but here's a, here's a fact that you probably won't recognize. Uh, this year on interior managed lands will produce more um, uh, oil and gas than ever in history, okay? At the same time, less land is leased than ever in history, and uh, or for at least like since since you know the 80s, and and the reality is that technology um, ha has driven development in different ways. It also has allowed us to have the ability to do things that um, allow us to accommodate wildlife and other things in ways that are different than say in the 70s and 80s. And so I think that um, what I want for the land that we manage for multiple uses is I want to make sure that all of the uses are appropriately recognized. What does that mean? It means that there are some areas in BLM that I say those are for enjoyment and solitude and, and have that wilderness protection. We have more wilderness today than we've ever had uh, under law. Um, and so the reality is we want to keep those areas protected. Um, uh, at the same time, there's other areas where we need to say, look, we need to manage our forests more actively. Uh, we need to uh, mitigate for catastrophic fire. We, we do need to allow communities to thrive in those areas that they can. And so those are all factors. It's not one or the other. Lay that over the decision to reduce the size of the two monuments. Well, I, was, um, I came in very late. So the sec president uh, directed the secretary to, of interior to do an assessment. He did an assessment. He provided the recommendations to the president. And the president modified uh, two monuments. Now, here's the reality with those monuments. Um, those monuments still remain in federal hands. Uh, some of the areas that, are, that were in a monument that are not are still wilderness areas. Some will be under multiple use, obviously. Uh, but, but the reality is, um, you know, the president is entitled to make those changes, and then we manage it accordingly. Hope you enjoyed that. Please stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. We'll have more conversation Endangered Species Act, plus the three most important questions. But this is a big topic for the country. Public lands, exploration, exploitation, pollution, preservation of national parks, all of it covered here. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Katiana Krachenko, and Jamie Benson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman and Eric Susanen. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TakeoutPodcast. That's at TakeoutPodcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.